Well, it's so great to be here again for our second summer session. And I'm sure when I mention this, it will come as no surprise to you to learn that American women spend a lot of money on their appearance. Uh, I read an article uh, from the New York Post that was citing a Groupon study. You know, Groupon, where you can get good deals on all sorts of things now? Well, Groupon uh, surveyed American women so that they could figure out, you know, what products they want to promote and buy into. And they surveyed them regarding the uh, amount of money that they spend on, you know, trying to preserve their appearance or augment their appearance. And they found that American women spend about $65 a month on on creams, lotions, and anti-aging products. Uh, we also spend about $115 a month on makeup and various treatments. Uh, we spend about $55 a month on haircuts, hair products, and whatever it takes to get that hair removal. Uh, and we spend about $125 a month on fitness, on gyms, uh, memberships, classes, supplements, things like that. Uh, so they totaled that all up and said that women spend about $4,000 a year on uh, just trying to improve or preserve their appearance, which they uh, did a little numbers crunch and said, uh, if you go from 18 to 78, for example, that translates to a quarter of a million dollars. A quarter of a million dollars. And you know what? That doesn't include clothes, shoes, and accessories. So uh, that's just, you know, the, the preserving the makeup, the product line of it all. Uh, so, you know, whether we want to admit it or not, I think we could all agree that there's something in us that would like to be pretty or beautiful or attractive, and we spend a lot of money trying to get there. And, you know, I'm going to just start by saying it's not necessarily wrong to want to be beautiful. It's actually okay. And you might think, wow, is that okay to want to be beautiful? It is. It's hardwired within us to be attracted to beauty. Uh, it's not wrong to want to be beautiful, but the scripture we're going to see reveals that we need to make sure we're seeking beauty in the right way and in the right place. And that's what our text will reveal. We're going to work through 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4. Uh, if you want to open your Bibles to 1 Peter, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6 is our text for our summer study. We're working through this in three different sections. Uh, the series is called The Power of Gentleness. And this time, we're looking at 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4, where we can discover what the secret is of true beauty, of what God calls beauty. So let's read the text together. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, it says... Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children. If you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. So as we saw last time, uh, this text is addressed to women. These six verses are addressed to women. The word there that says women is the Greek gune. Uh, it means women or it can mean wives. Here it's translated as wives and rightfully so because there's also the mention of husbands. So even though this is directed to wives, it can apply to any woman in any life stage. These life-changing principles that are tucked, tucked into this passage. 
We saw last time, uh, just looking through Peter's argument from the beginning of the book to this point, that uh, the goal in all of this is that people get saved. Uh, the goal is salvation. How can we live in such a way that as many people as possible will get saved? And this being directed to even women with non-believing husbands or disobedient husbands. How can we win them over to Christ? Um, we saw that it was not by nagging them or pressuring them or using excessive words. That's not the way it works. Uh, but it's by showing them our reverential behavior, our fear of the Lord, our respect for God, and our good works, living a life of good works. And then verses 3 and 4 go on to kind of unpackage more uh, what those good works look like. I mean, what does it mean to be someone who, a woman especially, who is living herself adorned with good works? So let's look back again at 1 Peter 3, just verses 3 and 4. What is it that people need to see in us? And he says, don't let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But, in contrast, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, you might think, well, that's odd. I mean, Peter's talking about women. These were these uh, uh, Gentile, primarily Gentile women who were living in this Greco-Roman culture. They were scattered throughout Asia Minor. They lived in a place where it was absurd. It was just unheard of for a woman to not worship the same God as her husband. And when these women became Christians, they were put in that position so Peter's instructing them on how to live. And not only were they called to worship Christ, even though their husband might not have worshiped Christ, but to win him over for the Lord. And so he's telling them again to have this respect for God, not to nag their husbands, uh, to really be a person of character. And then he transitions all of a sudden to their clothing, uh, to what they look like on the outside. It seems like such an odd thing, but actually it's very wise because Peter, God recognized that for women, our natural impulse sometimes is to think that maybe if we were better looking, maybe if we were prettier, then people would notice us. Maybe if we were more attractive, then someone would listen to me. I mean, maybe if I was just better looking, then my husband would be so enamored with me that he would surely surrender his life to Christ. And Peter and God says, no, uh, that's not the way that you do that. That's not the way you win anyone over to the Lord. And even though you might feel like you could get more of what you want if you were more beautiful... That's not the Christian way. That's not the way that God's daughters are called to win people to Christ. They're not to put their trust in themselves. And that's the first point. It's just stop trusting in yourself. Uh, all of these things that we try to do in order to get what we want is, in essence, trusting in ourself. That's what the world does the world trusts in themselves, but it's not what God's daughters are called to do. There's a parallel passage to this in 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 11 that basically says the same thing. 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 11 says, uh, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, in our text, if you notice, there are three key things here. Uh, it says that we are to not let our adorning be external, and then it's defined as the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing that we wear. And we might be thinking, well, is it wrong to braid your hair? If someone's habitually braiding her hair, should I ask her to sign up for biblical counseling? I mean, what does this mean? Uh, is it wrong to wear gold jewelry? Is that something I shouldn't be doing? Should I get rid of the earrings? Well, if that were true, then according to the next statement, 
you better get rid of the clothes too. And we know that's not what we're called to do, right? Because that's not really what the passage is focusing on. The passage is saying you're not to put your trust in, you're not to put your confidence in your external appearance. It's not saying you can't have a nice external appearance, but that's not where your confidence should lie. That's not where your trust or your hope should lie. And, you know, uh, before you start thinking, uh, as I tend to think at times, you know, I, oh, this probably isn't for me, but I know who this would be good for. It's a passage that's for me, and it's for you. This is for us. This is for Christian women. This is for godly women. And if you're thinking about somebody else, uh, just remember Romans 14.4. Romans 14.4 talks about gray areas, disputable matters, uh, things that aren't, you know, just lined out as black and white in the scripture, like, you know, how long should your dress be, and are you allowed to wear spaghetti straps, things like that. It says in Romans 14.4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. All that saying is concerning these disputable matters, these gray areas, you stand before God. You give an account to God for yourself. Don't worry about her, I guess, unless she's your daughter, right? I mean, you might be asking at this point, though, well, then how much beauty is too much? I mean, when does it become too much? How do I know that I've crossed over that line? And again, there's no you know, formula for that. That's between you and God. That's something that you need to work out between you and the Lord, and God knows where your heart is. And even though we can't see our hearts the way that God sees our hearts, I suspect that we might know whether or not we're going too far in this area. Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, 21. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is. I mean, think about that. Uh, since we can't actually see our heart, we can ask ourselves, how much of my time, how much of my talent, how much of my energy, how much of my effort, how much of my money and I, am I putting into my external appearance? And if we're going too far, it might reveal where our confidence lies. And that might be something that we need to adjust. And you might think, yeah, but in our culture, I mean, you even said in the beginning, you know, the Groupon study revealed that American women spend a lot on their appearance. In our culture, you just got to be marketable. I mean, I need to put a lot of energy and effort into making myself attractive. Well, it's not just our culture, right? I mean, when this was written, this was written 2,000 years ago to Gentile women who were scattered throughout the Greco-Roman world, and they needed this message just as much as we did. We also see the same thing in the Old Testament. Uh, for example, in Isaiah chapter 3, which was written hundreds of years uh, before Jesus came on the scene, before the time of the New Testament. In Isaiah chapter 3, uh, verse 24, for example, uh, there's a time when God's people were being disciplined by him because they put their confidence in themselves, uh, in the things that they had in their own abilities rather than in him. And out of love, he needed to discipline them. And he says in verse 24, instead of perfume, which they were so, you know, uh, loving the perfume that they wore, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, some beautiful belt, there'll be a rope. Instead of well-set hair, there'll be baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. God just saying those things that you put your trust in, I'm going to remove those for you, from you, so that you can trust in me again, rather than in your own beauty, so that you can trust in the Lord. So this is a timeless issue. It's not just specific to our culture. And you might think, well, yeah, but I do feel more confident. I feel so much better when I look good. 
Now, that can be true. I mean, we can get attention or approval or applause when we look good and people notice that we look good. But if we're building our confidence on that foundation, it is a foundation of sand, right? Because it is guaranteed that time will pass and you will be criticized for your appearance. Somebody will tell you that you don't look as good as you think you do. And if that's your foundation, you're going to be depressed. You're going to be crushed. You're going to be devastated. Psychology Today, a secular magazine, uh, did research and said that over half of all women that they surveyed are not happy with the way that they look. Uh, they said 70% of all women uh, feel that they weigh too much. And 50% of women feel like they have a problem with their stomach, their abdomen. Okay, so we don't want to build our confidence on that kind of a sand foundation, right? Uh, asking and thinking in ways that are just foolish. I mean, maybe we say things to our husband or to our boyfriend or our friends like, do I look fat? Do I look fat in this? You know, does this make me look ugly? What are they supposed to say? <laughs> if they say, yeah, you look fat, but it's okay, I, uh, that's it. They're done, right? I mean, date night's off, you're in the room crying, whatever. Uh, if they say, oh, you look great, you look perfect. I mean, you couldn't look any better than we think. Oh, you're lying. You know? So I, it's a, it's a, a lose-lose situation, right? And yet we do these odd things. I remember listening to a theologian that I really respect and admire. And he talked about preaching at a conference. And he said that when it was lunchtime at the conference, a big group of people went out together for lunch. And he said there was a variety of people there. And there happened to be, he said, this stunningly attractive woman who was a model who accompanied them to this, you know, lunchtime. And he said it was so odd because as they sat there eating lunch, he heard her talking and she was talking to others. And he said that she was saying things like, I've gained so much weight. I'm so fat now. I shouldn't be eating this. I'm too fat. I, I feel like I look ugly. And he said, as this went on and on, by the time the lunch was wrapping up, he thought, wow, she's really unattractive. <laughs> I mean, you know, we self-sabotage, right? When we build this confidence on this sand foundation. And no matter how beautiful we are, even like that stunning model, when we put our focus on the external, we're going to end up insecure. We're going to end up with a lack of confidence because we've put our hope in the wrong area, not in the right area. And that's exactly what God does not want us to do. He doesn't want us to put our hope in the wrong area. He wants us to pursue beauty, as the text says, but in the right place and in the right way. He doesn't want us to put our confidence in ourselves or in our temporary shell, our tent, but he wants us to put something, our confidence in something far greater. Let's look again at what 1 Peter 3, 4 says. 1 Peter 4 says, but, this Greek word Allah, in contrast to all of that external stuff, in contrast to trusting in yourself, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. That hidden person, uh, that Greek word is often translated secret. Uh, in Matthew chapter 6, for example, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, 4, uh, Jesus talks about your giving being in secret. And then he says that your father who sees in secret will reward you. Well, that's the same word that's translated hidden here. Uh, Matthew 6, 6, pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And then Matthew 6, 18, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, same Greek word for hidden here. 
It's the secret person, the hidden person, the real you, the you that God sees. And what is that secret, that hidden person, that internal person supposed to be characterized by or look like? Well, it says a gentle and a quiet spirit. That's what God's looking for. This is a picture of a woman who doesn't trust in herself, but who totally trusts in Christ. She totally trusts in God and in the character of God. She trusts in the sovereignty of God. And no matter what happens in the world, in her life, no matter what tragedies are going on around her, she is confident that God is in control, that he's in control of all of the affairs of heaven and earth. He knows exactly what he's doing, and he's got this. And she's settled in that. She's confident in the goodness of God. She knows that he is good, that he is far more good than she could ever be or desire to be. She knows that she experiences goodness because he's good. She knows that even though things might be rough or difficult or not going the way she planned, that he's good. And he's even able to take and redeem the most tragic of circumstances in this life for his glory and her good as well. And she knows she's settled in the fact that God is forgiving that if she confesses her sins to him, because God is faithful and God is just, not because of her character, but because of him, he will forgive her. He will release her from every sin she's ever committed or will commit. If she's in Christ, there's no condemnation to her. And there's no way that anything in this life will separate her from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. That is a woman who trusts in God. That is this inner person who exhibits this gentle and quiet spirit. So the second point here is be known. Be known for confidence in Christ. Uh, this should be something that characterizes our inner person so that when people who know us uh, live around us, when they spend time with us, they see that coming through because that's the core of our being. They see that as being our adornment rather than being uh, relying or being confident in our physical appearance. We're confident in God and who God is. And even though the world can achieve all sorts of external beauty, they can never achieve this. The world can never achieve this because this is predicated upon a relationship with Christ, knowing God. It's a beauty that comes from knowing Jesus. That word there, gentle, uh, the Greek word is praus, uh, and it's used in Matthew 5.5. 5. Matthew 5.5, 5, when Jesus was teaching, uh, when Jesus said in Matthew 5.5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Same Greek word, blessed are the praus, and there are extra biblical sources, that's writings outside of the Bible from around the same time that the New Testament was written that uses the same Greek word. And it's used in a variety of ways. It's such a multifaceted and beautiful word. Uh, it's used in one writing to describe a horse, a wild stallion that has been tamed or brought under control. Uh, that wild stallion is Prius. Uh, it's used in one writing to describe carefully chosen words that can, strong, can calm strong and passionate emotions. You know, when you're in that conversation with people, or maybe it's even your husband and the energy's up, you're very careful about the words that you use and you're able to keep that tension level down. Those are praus, they're gentle words. Uh, it describes an ointment that's used medicinally to take the pain out of a wound. Uh, that's a praus ointment, a gentle ointment that removes that sting. 
It describes people who treat others with dignity and with respect. That's a praus person, a gentle person who shows dignity and respect to all, whether she agrees with them or not. And in Plato's works, it was uh, used to describe the term that a child uh, expressed when asking his doctor if he would treat him tenderly or kindly. Treat me with gentleness, with praus. Uh, so praus, this gentleness, it's controlled, it's careful, it's healing, it's respectful, and it's kind. And Jesus calls us to be gentle. He wants us to be like that because he was like that. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle. I am praus and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. And then again, uh, it's used of Jesus in Matthew 21.5 in this uh, really neat passage where uh, it says, Say to the daughters of Zion, to God's kids, Behold, your king is coming to you. King Jesus, he's coming to you. How is he coming? Humble. That's praus, that's gentle. And mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The humble, praus, Jesus riding into Jerusalem to prepare himself for his own execution, to ready himself to be crucified for the sins of the world. That's gentle Jesus. He's not fighting against God. He's not shaking the fist in the face of God, but he's displaying great power under control. That's what it means to be gentle. Remember, Jesus even said to Peter, you know, don't think that I can't appeal to God and that he won't send me more than 12 legions of angels to come and war on my behalf. I got this. But he was gentle. He had that power and strength and ability, but it was under control. I, I read about a uh, pastor who said his young daughter, when she was little, used to love to squeeze his hand and try to make his hand hurt. And no matter how hard she squeezed it and squeezed it, he said, it just didn't hurt. And he said every now and then he would squeeze her hand, you know, a little hard, and he said she would scream. And he said, you know, it's a reminder that it's the strong and not the weak that need to be gentle. These women were spiritually strong. They were believers. They were strong in Christ. And God asked them to exercise gentleness, strength under control. And then this word uh, for quiet, uh, hesukios is the Greek word for quiet here. It's also used in 1 Timothy 2.2. Uh, it says, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, a peaceful and hesukios life, godly and dignified in every way. Uh, so peaceful and quiet are synonyms here. Uh, quiet, well-ordered, again, peaceful. Uh, when you think about peace and peacetime, it means there's an absence of war. There's no war around her. Uh, when you come and tell her something she doesn't want to hear, She's not going to blow up. It's a time of quietness, of peace, of settled confidence. Uh, your family members, your husband especially, your kids, your friends, they're not afraid to let you know because if you find out, you're going to lose it, right? Uh, that's not the peaceful and the quiet spirit. And it's not even just forcing that down to where you don't say anything or blow on the outside, but inside, everyone can see that you're raging. It's not that. It comes from within. It's this settled confidence in God, in Christ, and in Christ's character. Uh, it's like uh, the quietness that you see over a lake or even over the ocean at that moment when there are no waves and you're walking by and it just looks as still as glass. 
That's like the heart, the soul of this quiet woman. It's just not agitated and hot-tempered. It's settled and confident in God. And you might be thinking, but you don't know how hard my life is right now. I'm going through so many difficult circumstances. I just can't exhibit this gentleness and quietness right now. But you know what? This is the perfect time for you to be gentle and quiet. Because when your circumstances are out of control and you are able to display that gentle and quiet, hidden person of the heart, you're able to reveal to all who watch that your confidence in Christ is not based on your circumstances, but it's based on your relationship with him. What better time to exhibit this character? This gentle and quiet spirit just doesn't freak out when things go off course or when things don't go as she planned. She's confident in Jesus. She's got this because God has got this and he's good. Now, gentle and quiet doesn't mean we can't talk. It doesn't mean we can't have passionate and firm beliefs. But it means when we talk, we talk differently than the world talks. When we talk, we listen. We humbly listen to people. Uh, we don't uh, just blab and blurt and go on and on and on about ourselves. We listen. We listen to others. We ask questions. We ask them why they feel that way. We ask them why they think that. Where did they get those ideas? And we're genuinely interested in them. It means that when we talk and when people disagree with us, uh, if it's a non-moral issue, if it's something where no biblical law is being violated, we let it go. We don't war over our opinions. We don't war over the things that don't really matter in the end. But it also means that we stand firm on what does matter. We're kind and we're respectful, but we do stand firm on what does matter because our confidence is in Christ. A.W. Tozer, who wrote The Knowledge of the Holy, he said that we need a gentle dogmatism that smiles while it stands stubborn and firm on the word of God that live, lives and abides forever. So we're humble, we're engaging, we're focusing on others, asking questions. We're not fighting over things that aren't violating biblical law or principle. We're willing to let those things go. But we stand firm with kindness, with that gentle dogmatism when it comes to gospel issues. And, you know, in all honesty, when you converse like this, uh, whether it be with your disobedient husband or the world around you, it can be exhausting because you're always making it about others and not yourself. It can be exhausting. It can take a lifetime to master, but it's worth it. It's so worth it to be known for this and to be characterized by this kind of conversation. Uh, one uh, theologian, a Princeton theologian, wrote to his students, he said, gentleness corrects whatever is offensive in our manners. In other words, when you say the wrong thing, and you will, when you do the wrong thing, and you will, this gentleness being characterized uh, as this person, it, uh, it just bells those things, those times when you drop the ball. Someone's able to look at you and say, that's not the overall tenor of her life. Her heart reveals that she's focused on God, on Christ, and not herself. And you might think, wow, I really want people to see that my confidence is in Christ. I'm just wondering how I can do that. Well, let me just mention four simple things that you can do. And these are from Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31, 10 through 31. 
Uh, this is the picture of the excellent woman, the excellent wife. The address there is to a woman. Again, it's translated wife because there's a husband there, but it's to a woman. This is for all women. And the first thing that you can do is just choose right now. If your confidence in Christ, choose right now to be fearless. Be fearless. Proverbs 31, 16 says, she considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. That means that she's looking out and she's seeing there's something good. There's a good opportunity here. I'm going to take the risk. I'm going to do whatever I can to maximize that opportunity. I'm going to plant a vineyard. Uh, what's that, what that's saying to us is maybe there's something that God's calling you to do. Maybe you know what it is and you're afraid to do it. But if your confidence is in Christ and you know God's calling you to do it, then you can be fearless. And people can see that, that you don't live in a self-preservation mode. I mean, maybe your husband's saying he wants you to quit your job and stay home, but you're afraid of losing money. Be fearless. Do what he asks. Do what Christ calls you to do. Maybe your husband wants you to homeschool and you're afraid. Or maybe he doesn't want you to homeschool anymore and you're afraid. Be fearless. Don't be afraid. Be this woman who's confident in Christ. And even if things don't work out, even if everything fails, so what, right? So what? Your confidence is in Jesus. Allow people to see that by your bold moves. Choose to be busy with your life. Choose to be busy. Choose to be doing things. Proverbs 31, 19. Uh, it says that this godly woman, she puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. In other words, she is working hard. This distaff and spindle were part of this tool that she would use to weave. Uh, she was always working hard. She's not waiting around. Uh, she's not just sitting there binging on Netflix every night. Uh, waiting for somebody or something to come along and fix her life for her or change her circumstances. She's confident in Christ. She knows that whatever circumstances she's in right now, this day, this minute, this is what Jesus has called her to. And she's going to maximize those things. Uh, she's not going to just sit there and play the victim. And people see that when we're busy when we're not just scrolling through the internet or staring at our phone all day, when we're doing something, when we're saying Christ has given me life and I'm gonna do something with it, let's move forward and people see that and they can see your confidence in Jesus. She also, the third thing is she focuses on other people. She doesn't make this life about herself. Uh, Proverbs 31.20 says she opens her hands, her hand to the poor, and reaches out her hands to the needy. I mean, she's not just being generous, she's reaching out her hands. She's saying, whose needs can I meet? She's saying, right now, whose needs can I meet? Where is Christ calling me to serve people? This isn't about me. My life is safe. My life is hidden with Christ and God. I don't need to defend myself and protect myself. I'm here to focus on others. And when we say, how can I meet the needs of other people using my unique skills, talents, and abilities, people see our confidence in Christ. And then the last thing is, and this is real simple, but just smile. Just smile. I know that sounds silly, but when we smile, it reveals a joy, a confidence that's in our heart. And when people look at us and they see that smiling external appearance there, they see uh, something that reveals a heart that is smiling. A heart that's smiling again because she's confident in Christ. Proverbs 31, 25. Strength and dignity are her clothing and she laughs. She smiles at the time to come. She's not afraid of tomorrow or next month or next year. It's not always doom and gloom, no Debbie Downer, no misery. The world doesn't need to see that. They need to see our confidence in Christ. We need to choose to smile. 
And maybe your natural face just isn't a smiling one. I mean, literally, we need to think about it and make that choice to smile so that others see what's really in our heart, that our confidence is in Christ. You know, and if we live that way, if we're fearless, if we're doing whatever Christ has called us to do without uh, being afraid of what we might lose, if, without being in that self-preservation mode, if we're busy, if we're not just laying around, playing the victim, complaining all the time, but busy, uh, getting to work and doing things, if we're others-focused, if we're smiling, uh, people are going to look at us and say, who is that? She looks good. She is attractive, and they're going to see our confidence in Christ. And that is true beauty. That's the beauty that really lasts. Look back at 1 Peter 3, 4. It talks about this lasting beauty. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. It's going to last. It's imperishable. So the third and final point here is that we need to invest in what's going to last. This lasting beauty, we need to make decisions to invest in the things that are going to last. The world is so focused on our shells, but God is focused on our souls, right? And we need to focus on souls as well. That's what God calls us to do, is to invest in what's going to last, and that's souls. Because when God looks at people, he just sees things differently than we do. Uh, we see that in 1 Samuel, right? When Samuel was called to pick the next king of Israel, God sent him to the house of Jesse, and Jesse apparently had these very good-looking, uh, tall, strong, handsome sons. And God kept saying to Samuel, even though Samuel thought this has got to be the guy, God said, no, pass on that one and pass on that one. And not because they were good looking, but because God says he sees the heart. He sees that hidden person of the heart. He sees the soul. He sees what's going to last. First Samuel 6, 7, God said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I've rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God, the Lord, looks on the heart. God's looking at our souls. God cares about our souls. He sees what's really going to last, what really makes a difference here, what's worth investing in, and it's souls. I read about um, Charles Adams, who was the son of John Quincy Adams, who happened to be our sixth president, who was the son of John Adams, who happened to be our second president. Uh, and he had a son, Brooke Adams. And uh, they found the diary of Charles Adams. And one day, a diary entry that he wrote said, went fishing with my son today, a day wasted. I mean, it wasn't a day that he was doing things that he thought were worth investing in, that were important. They actually found that his son had a diary. And on the same day, his son put an entry in his diary. And his son's diary said, went fishing with my father, the most wonderful day of my life. The contrast there, investing in what's really going to matter. You know, we don't want to get deceived here. We don't want to end up investing in all these things where God looks down and says, what are you doing? You didn't invest in what really mattered. You got caught on so many rabbit trails and so many tangents. Invest in the things that really matter. What Charles saw as a waste, his son Brooke would never forget. We've got to get our thinking aligned with God's thinking so that we don't blow off the things that have lasting worth and chase after the things that aren't valuable at all. Valuable? Yeah, this passage talks about what's valuable to God. Uh, again, look at 1 Peter 3, 4. It wraps up with the imperishable beauty, the lasting beauty 
of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. That Greek word there means valuable. It's very valuable. Uh, the word means basically the most valuable, the end all, very costly. Uh, the same word is used in Mark. Mark chapter 14, it's used in verse 3, where it talks about Mary anointing Jesus with that uh, alabaster flask of pure ointment. And it says that the ointment of pure nard was very costly. Same Greek word there. Uh, very precious, very valuable. It was worth a lot of money. And then we know that the disciples after that became furious, the text says. They said, why did she break that ointment and use it on you, Jesus? That could have been sold. And there was a lot of money there that could have been given to the poor. And Jesus said to her, leave her alone. In verse six of Mark 14, she has done a beautiful thing to me. This was a beautiful thing. It was a lasting thing. She took this expensive, you know, alabaster jar of pure ointment that was costly, that was worth, they say, a year's wages, and just broke it and gave it to Jesus. You know, why? Why is something expensive? Well, it's expensive because it's worth a lot of money, and it's worth a lot of money because it's hard to get, right? It's rare. It's something that's really hard to get your hands on. I remember in the 80s, everybody seemed to want a Rolex watch. And I know Rolex watches are still worth a lot of money. Uh, they're worth a lot because they're made from the most expensive materials. Uh, they're made from the most expensive steel. Rolex has their own gemologists. They purify their own metals. Uh, they're worth a lot because they're made by hand. Uh, there's some machines that help people make them by hand, but they're actually made by hand. And they go through extreme quality control. They're even pressure tested to make sure there's nothing wrong with them. Each watch takes two years to make. Two years to make one watch, and some of them are now worth millions of dollars. In fact, one just sold for $17.8 million dollars almost $20 million for one watch. Well, you know, this woman that Peter describes here, this woman who's got her confidence in Christ, the hidden person of the heart with the gentle and quiet spirit, she's worth far more than that Rolex, far more than that Rolex. And that can be you, and that can be me too. If we stop trusting in ourselves and we put our confidence in Christ and we do what Christ is calling us to do, we can be that person. We can be that woman. Proverbs 31.10 says, an excellent wife who can find. An excellent woman is the literal Hebrew there. Who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. She's far more expensive than anything that we can buy. And in contrast to all the money that we shell out on our shell, right? Here's something that costs no money, but is extremely rare. It's something you can never buy. It's not on sale at South Coast Plaza, right? I mean, this takes a person who is trusting in Jesus, who knows Jesus, and who's willing to do things God's way. We need to make sure that we're investing in the right things, checking what we listen to, what we read, what we see, what we hear, what we think about, what we talk about. Are these the things that Jesus would want us to read, see, hear, think about, talk about? Are these the things Jesus would really want us to invest into? Because what we spend our time investing into reveals what's really, again, in our heart and important to us. Last proverb, Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. It's fleeting. It's not going to last. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. 
Well, we can see from our text that woman who fears the Lord is one who turns from self-confidence to a settled trust in Christ. She continually and routinely exhibits strength under control. And her beauty, it's internal. And it's of incredible worth to God. She's different. She's rare. I want to be that woman. We can be that woman. You can be that woman, and I can be that woman too if we choose to do things God's way. Well, last time we said gentleness was, based on the text, a willingness to yield without excessive words, motivated by fear of displeasing God and pure devotion to Christ. And this time we can add a couple more layers to that. Uh, Gentleness is turning from self-confidence to settled trust in Christ. Gentleness is strength under control. Gentleness is internal and of incredible worth to God. So let's all work on memorizing this passage before our next session. And next time we're going to look at verses 5 and 6 and keep on exploring this ancient text written to women and see what else we can find there for our learning. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you so much for these amazing women that you've brought here, Lord God. These beautiful women who truly want to capture this hidden beauty of the heart, a beauty that you see, God, a beauty that is valuable to you. We want to embrace and be known for and truly have that gentle and quiet spirit. God, help us. Whatever it is that your Holy Spirit is revealing to us right now, help us, God, to do what's right. To turn from the things that are distracting us and have gotten us off track and to turn to where we should be, Lord God. To turn from self-confidence and to turn to full confidence in Christ. God, please help us to care about others, to not waste our time on things that don't really matter in the end, to focus on the gospel, to be a woman who's known for trusting in Jesus wholeheartedly, regardless of the circumstances around her. God, may we choose to invest into the right things, things which have eternal value, things where you would say, yes, That was a good choice. God, we need your Holy Spirit to do this. Uh, Left to ourselves, we're going to make a mess out of everything. But God, with your Holy Spirit, we can do this. We can be these rare women. And I pray that you would help us to do so. We thank you so much for Jesus who makes this all possible, God. Without him, we would have no hope. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.